Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of Series 3 of an Inside View podcast. We are delighted to be back and extremely excited for the upcoming series. A big shout out to the Shire Baron Cafe and Clarney who have come on board again to support us for this series. We really appreciate it guys and thank you very much. For the very first episode of Series 3, we're delighted to be joined by co-CEO of AES International, Sam Instone. Described by The Economist magazine as the Field Marshal of Finance. Instone is a former captain in the Household Cavalry of the British Army and a former roommate of world-renowned musician James Blunt. He is now leading a financial services company in the Middle East. There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. So hi Sam, thanks for taking time out to come on Inside View podcast. I really appreciate it. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Good, good. I know we uh, we were trying to get this organised for a while, but it's um it's an honour now to to have you on. In the interest of time, let's get get straight into it. You're you know you've been living in Dubai for a long time. Um, what was your experience of COVID like? You will probably never hear a more positive person than me about Dubai. Uh, I love it. I, I love the social aspect. I love the business aspect. I think the it's an exciting place to live, and most of all, the sun's always shining. And so, I think living here during COVID, I was extremely privileged that we got back to normal fairly quickly. We were vaccinated fairly quickly. The country managed it um, pr- pretty well compared to lots of parts of the world, and so it couldn't have been a better time for me. And from a business perspective, how was it, Sam? Was it, was it difficult? I think the initial reaction, no one expected us to be working at home quite so quickly. I can remember saying to the head of IT when he said we need to move to remote working, that he was overreacting and had probably lost his marbles. However, a few weeks later, amazingly, I'm glad that he went ahead in any case. And prepared for everything it was fairly seamless when we did move that out of office and I think it showed from a business point of view how resilient everybody was and how they could work effectively from remote locations and if anything it had a net positive impact upon the organization and in regards to working from home was that something you know I suppose prior to COVID only some companies uh, used to do it but was that something you were kind of hesitant to do initially? You know, yeah. it, it probably sped up the process for a lot of companies. Absolutely. I think it's something we hadn't really thought too much of before COVID. And then it just became the norm. And I think in the future, it's almost certainly going to play a much, much bigger role in all organizations and flex- flexible working, uh, remote working. I think it's all a positive impact upon the transitions which we go, go through. Upon reflection, what would you say you've learned from, from that period of, uh, of COVID? We'll probably talk about this more later, but mindset, and I think different communication preferences have 
different individuals, in particular, as we've used disk profiling uh, to, to look in, in the metrics and that can be called many different things, but it's almost a color profiling system which allows for people's different communication preferences and a look into their mindsets. And a lot of people reacted positively, growth mindsets, and a lot of people reacted ne negatively, and that's probably fear or scarcity mindsets. And so for me, the big learning experience of watching how people with different communication preferences reacted with different types of mindsets to the changing circumstances. Do you feel people's attitude um, has changed around money and health on the back of, of COVID? What would be your opinion around that? I'd certainly say health has become a much bigger focus. And we always say the first wealth is health and look after your body because it's the only place you've got to live. And whether that is mental health or physical health, I think that's come much more to the fore. People putting health first, and that, of course, has a knock-on effect to their personal and professional lives. And we've seen things such as a great resignation uh, where people have decided they're going to put their health or their quality of life first. And so there's definitely been a, a transition and really wealth is just a link between people's lives, their goals, their legacy. And so as people's mindsets have changed with the change, changing world, I, I see the, the link of money also changing with that. Perfect, perfect. And before we, we kind of delve into it any further, um, let I always like to bring our, our guests back to you know, to, to the early days, um, because I think that's kind of important to, to see to see the career path they've come on since then. So for, for those that wouldn't be aware, um, you were you were in the British uh, British Army. Um, before we delve into that, what was your childhood like? Did it? Uh, do you think it has a had a positive effect on you? Sure. So my all I can remember wanting to be is in the military like lots of little boys and running around playing soldiers and um, that's what I like to do and actually growing up and doing that I had a fantastic time doing it I be, would be a career soldier because it's my dream job had I not left met the lady of my dreams who said she'd never marry me if I stayed in the army and went from operational tour to operational tour in different part, parts of the world all the, t all the time so that was my reason for leaving going back to the question about childhood I had a very happy a privileged, lucky childhood, I would say that it affects everybody. Our conditioning of how we grow up from the, mo from when, the moment when within the, the womb until early adulthood, the uh, role modeling of our parents, the impact of the community in which we live, the impact of our peers, our experiences has an effect on our conditioning. Our conditioning affects our beliefs. Our beliefs affect our attitude, whether we have a positive or negative attitude. Our attitude affects our behavior. And really, our behavior, the words and feelings, words and actions which we take is the only bit which people can visit, visibly see. But ultimately, if that comes from our feelings, which comes from our attitude, which comes from our beliefs, which come from our underlying conditioning, then the impact of our childhood and our upbringing in terms of our mental scripts, which we are running in both our limbic 
brain, our inner brain, and our outer cortex, our frontal frontal cortex. Uh, it, it had an immeasurable impact upon everything, and I that's why I look at as a family steward my psychometric profile, the way in which we're brought up, and the creation of memories with our children, moments that matter, is so important. When you, um, okay, so can you remember any moment, say, in your childhood that was light bulb moment that you decided, look, this is what I want to do, I want to be in the military, um, or was that just something you always, always dreamt of? Like, would you have had family members in it? Absolutely, it came from a long uh, a long line of different military people. So that was really the only ever ever option I was involved in things like cadets from a very early age. Uh, but going back to your question, do I have any specific memories? I do. I remember not being allowed, not related to the military, but with my parents, not being allowed sugar as a child, <laughs> not being allowed to eat sweets. My mother, child of the 60s, uh, very into yoga, very into health foods. And because I wasn't allowed sugar, I used to go and binge on sugar at every moment I possibly could. And uh, strangely, that's something which I carried in child in, into adulthood is that I try predominantly to be very healthy. I constantly think about my health. I think about no, uh, no, no sugar. But if I begin to eat sugar, I will binge. It's an example of a script, which I think I could trace back to my childhood, which now runs in later later on in life so i think that time your formative years are so important in creating the habits the rituals the behaviors which really impact you later on can you come can you remember your your very first training session in the military was it like did it kind of scare you or is it something you relished well i i remember more the first day not so much the training session i've always loved physical activity and exercise but i definitely remember the first day of the shock impact uh, when you first go to, in my case, the Royal Military Academy, and you meet the real face after all those years of cadets um, off the training corps, that was the day, your first day when you actually go in and you meet your colour sergeant and get told to take your hands out of your pockets and not lean on any walls, it's definitely a shock an awe memory. I'm, I'm sure everybody remembers their first day, ironing board underneath their arm, really wheeling their suitcase towards an angry looking color sergeant the day their military training begins. is etched on everyone's memories. Looking back now, and you, I'm sure you would have reflected on it. Was there a big change in the person that went into the military versus the person that uh, that left the military? As I said, I loved everything about the military. And it's an amazing privileged place to be for at least an entire year, just at Royal Military Academy, learning about leadership and spending a lot of time doing physical exercise, learning skills, drills, SOPs. I think for me, I still remember the seven core values of an army officer, which knowledge, willpower, initiative, integrity, flexibility, maneuverability, economy of effort. And I think the discipline which they instill in you during that training, the competitiveness, the attention to detail, which you go carry through. So I definitely think I left military academy a much better person than I went in, despite not having had the most enjoyable time 
because it's not the most fun whilst you're doing it, but you have great memories like everything, great memories to look look back on afterwards and the same later when you go into regimental duty and you, you're exposed to high performance people, high pressure situations, different types of challenges. I found the whole thing fascinating and have nothing but good memories looking back, although I remember them not being so good at the time. When you when you say regimental, just for for people that might be aware, is that um is that a level up or a couple of advancement? Uh, well, after after military academy, you then go into your regiment, and that can be something like the infantry or the cavalry or the logistics. And so, when you actually go into um, after training, you actually then go into an operational unit, and that's maybe. Uh, for for some, for full military career, that's twenty two years in your your regiment. For somebody like me who left as a captain, it's just a few years. Um, what I would uh, like to take to delve into now two things. You um, you served in Northern Ireland for a period of time. Was that quite eye opening for uh, a person from just outside London to end up inside there? Well. I know you have lots of Irish listeners. And Sorry, so, this one's on the script now. So. <laughs> absolutely. Lots of Irish listeners. And so it was, for me, 2001, it was an interesting time in the peace process. I'd already studied uh, the history of the troubles at university because I did a degree in war studies. So I learned about uh, Richard Strongbow landing to do battle with Rory O'Connor at the Battle of Waterford in 1240 onwards and the Easter uprisings I knew the history and it was a fascinating time that we were already in the into the peace process but it was still interesting to see the remnants of that and the progress that has since been been made in Northern Ireland. Definitely definitely 100% and hopefully that will uh will continue just on another side uh, side note, when this will go out, hopefully the issues will be resolved in uh, in Russia versus Ukraine. But, but what, have you any any opinion on on that at the moment? It's uh, it's quite sad to see something like that happening in this this day and age. Absolutely, with a degree in war studies and a little known fact is that there has been a war somewhere in the world every year since 1945, and so. Again, we can look again into the human psyche and why we uh, do go to go to war. Um, the continuation of politics by by other other means, and it's incredibly sad what's happening there at, at the moment. I just hope that they will make some type of progress in peace negotiations and political means in the near future. Definitely, definitely, and we'll uh, we'll delve into that in a few more minutes in regards to the financial uh, impact it's, it's having. But tell us about the time you. Uh, I found this brilliant when I, when I found out about it. Um, you saved the queen, saved, oh. saved the queen's life. Well, I can tell that could be an entire podcast in itself. <laughs> so there, there are a couple of moments infamous in my military career. The first one was I was very fortunate to share a. Uh, house with James Blunt, the pop singer. Uh, a little known fact that before he became a world famous pop, pop singer, he was in the same regiment as, as myself in the military. 
and was also even then highly talented at pretty much everything. The second story is what I like to tell and embellish quite a lot, a little bit like the scene when Kevin Costner saves Whitney Houston in the Bodyguard film, or sometimes I describe myself as Clint Eastwood, but as captain of the Queen's Guard, I like to embellish a story about the day I saved the Queen's life, but to cut to the chase quickly, the reality was that rather than taking a bullet like Kevin Costner, I took an egg in the back of the head, not in the a bullet in the front. So really the punchline is the shell was an eggshell actually thrown by the Scottish. You'll be pleased to know, not the Irish. <laughs> thrown by the Scottish nationalists. A lot of people say they were throwing it at me, not at the Queen. But whatever happens, I took a, an egg in the head, a rotten egg in the head, in close proximity to the Queen when I was her bodyguard. On that point, when you're her bodyguard, would you be one of those, um, and excuse my lack of knowledge around it, would you be one of those guys who would have been, you know, wearing the red uh, outside Buckingham Palace? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Red, my one was the red tunic and the horse. A lot of people say, oh, the ones with the big black hats. And I say, absolutely not. Those are the infantry. Uh, the ones that sound them with the big black hats, the bearskins, they are the foot guards. I was in the cavalry, so I wore the red tunic with a golden helmet and a white plume and a shiny breastplate. And I'm the ones that ride past the cavalry. The cavalry like to think of themselves much better than the infantry. And so the, the House of Cavalry were the ones in the red tunics or the white plumes or the other version of the House of Cavalry are the blue tunics with the red plumes. They're called the Blues and Royals. So that regiment is called the House of Cavalry reg Regiment and they're very different than the big black hats that lots of people think about when we talk about back in Palace. Yeah, or <laughs> and in regards to James Blunt, um, was he always, uh, you know, was he always extremely an, an extremely good singer? Um, I believe you, um, you always thought he was very good, did you? Well, he was good at everything. If I tell the truth, he was good at skiing. He was good at horse riding. He was good at partying. Uh, he was always an all round superstar and sad to say he is even more of a superstar all these years later i saw him recently in dubai and he was literally remarkable in in concert he was am amazingly entertaining much more so than i could even have imagined so i had a great night out uh, a few weeks ago watching him in concert when you when you left um the day you left the uh... The, uh, the infantry, infantry, wasn't it? Is that right? Uh, the House of Cavalry. The House of Cavalry. Um, you, you, I heard a famous story that you asked him, what, what, what's he going to be? What's he going to do now? Yeah, he told me he was going to be a pop star. And I said, no, there's no way. Because he, we were already mid to late 20s by that stage. Uh, I thought he was too old. He was very different and had a very different persona in, in the military and I, he said to me, what am I going to do? And I said, well, I hope to work in overseas and that type of thing. And he said, yeah, you'll be great at that. You're really boring. And <laughs> little did I know that within two years of that time, I spoke to him. He was releasing that song, I Like to Think About Me, on the inside, not on the outside. You're beautiful. <laughs> and was amazingly successful. So that was my mistake. I made many, many mistakes in my time, and that was one of them. So let's lead on to those mistakes. Um, but 
yeah, actually, yeah, before we get into those mistakes, let's actually talk about your transition from, you know, in, in military, in the army, in that environment to setting up a successful uh, financial services company. Um, I'm probably summarizing it very easily there. It, I'm no doubt it was quite difficult, was it? Well, it was just a, a long change or metamorphosis. I initially left the military and worked in security in Africa. And when we were in security in East Africa, we, Iraq and then Afghanistan began. And I realized that perhaps I shouldn't be doing the security job. I should be looking after everyone's money who was doing the security job. And therefore we created the first organization that specialized in financial services in hostile environments or for people who do dangerous jobs and that's really how we began and i made that transition into financial services what has what has it been like the last you know the last number of years you you know going through obviously the recession and and different ups and downs in in, in the economy what has the the struggle been like because i know initially you would have started off in in switzerland and then you would have been in the UK. Um, so let's just bring it out to Dubai. Why did you decide to bring it out to, to Dubai? Well, I'd say it's a one long learning experience and we are going through constant iterations and hopefully constant positive changes and making things better. And why Dubai? I think the Middle East regionally uh, needs it, the export of best practice. We are decades behind as a region in terms of financial literacy and infrastructure. And there's an unparalleled opportunity really here to arbitrage, to export US and Canadian and Australian best practice, European best practice into a region that is it's still, even though we're advanced here in many other areas, in terms of financial services, with added insurance or investment, we are decades and decades behind the leading markets in the world. And therefore, not only can I live in paradise where the sun is always shining, where I can go to the beach, where I can go to the desert, where I can exercise, I can cycle on flat ground on cycle paths instead of hilly, rainy, wet pothole roads in, in, in England. So not only can I live in paradise, but there's also a vi- amazing and parallel commercial opportunity here to, to create positive change in a way which I don't think exists in more developed markets of the world. So I can combine my personal life with my professional life here in an area which I really see as growing, uh, where there's a, a multi-generational opportunity and an overall great great place to live. I will be here forever. I like it so much. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm quite dreading the summer here, though. I haven't uh, experienced I mean, that never yet. Been, I, lo- I like the summer even more because I just like uh, the Battle of Thermopylae where the Persian arrows blotted out the sun and the Athenians could, and Spartan, the Spartans could fight in the shade. Here, when it's hot and sunny you get free heartbeats 
in terms of your heartbeat when I cycle to work each morning or cycle home in the evening in 45 degrees, my heart beats 20 beats per minute higher. So I get extra training effect for no extra effort. Love the mindset. Oh, it's the small wins. <laughs> yeah, small, great. 20, 20. So I don't have to pedal very hard to get a, a really good zone two, zone three training effect. <laughs> what, you know, looking back, um, Sam, what would you say is AES today versus to what it was in the early days? You know, what's the big difference as a company? I think people underestimate um, how much change they can make in short periods of time or overestimate overestimate in short periods of time and underestimate what can be achieved in long periods of time. And each year we change very, very substantially. And we've obviously pivoted many different times. The first major pivot being out of uh, high-risk areas and hazardous professions and the much more uh, a much more general type of type of area. We've been big in terms of looking at lots of jurisdictions, and now we are hyper hyper local in terms of only looking at a very very small area, but trying to be that one inch wide, mile deep niche specialist, the best we possibly can be in one specific uh, uh, geographic location. And so each year, I see quite a lot of change, and I tend to measure that change through the quality of the people which we have and their levels of knowledge, um, the, the service which we're providing and how good we feel those services are. And then the action, what actually, what, what metrics are we actually looking at and how we're we looking at both quantitative and qualitative type improvements. So, you know, when you did move the company over here, what was the biggest struggle to kind of get off the ground here? Um, you obviously have the the regulation, but you also would have the, you know, the personality side of it. Did you have to do a lot of networking in order to get the name out there? Well, with Dubai specifically, we actually bought a company here in the credit crunch and it's operating in an environment where we didn't grow up within and we don't know how to navigate it well. I, I refer to a lot of people, they come here and they get Dubai. Um, and once we've been here along, we know what being Dubai is. And it means that there's a double or triple or quadruple pricing system on things. So the company we bought, the accounts weren't right. There was actually big holes in it. We overpaid for it. Uh, we paid too much for our local sponsor. Uh, the people within the organization were robbing out of it. It was everything possible was wrong. And it took many years for the dust to settle and for us to get to know how to broadly navigate the exigencies of this local market even now we're not perfect at it and so i think growing up in a different culture we don't know how the real world works and so it's very easy to make a lot of mistakes and yeah you really learn from experience and and many times that learning experience just costs a lot of money. And that can also be the, the same for individuals who are promised the job of their dreams here. They get here and find out it's commission only and uh, a very different operating environment to the broad support nets, which we have at home through the social security systems. And it's a rude awakening that as the 
marble falls away and you see that it's actually all propped up by bamboo and nothing is quite as it, as it seems. So I think both companies moving here and individuals moving here it can actually be very challenging for quite a long period of, of time. I think it's important to give an insight into the positive change that, you know, you have been implementing throughout the company um, and from living it and experiencing it, it's, uh, it's quite infectious and it's, it's absolutely amazing, um, extremely motivating and, and encouraging. But do you want to just kind of explain what it is and, and why you decided to bring that in? Sure. In terms of our why, uh, why do we exist? And I'm very passionate that we are strategically trying to transform an industry that is fairly medieval and has historically manufactured and vended products to people like the cigarette tobacco industry that are harmful. And that's what I look at the financial services industry as manufacturing and selling harmful products. And we are about transforming that into a profession where the client is at the center of everything that we do and we think really the experience economy where clients and their lives at the center of everything uh, companies and the company's future is at the center of everything that we we do in a professional services basis is the future the next generation not the last generation the missionary not the, the mercenary so that transform transformation we call that uh, the mission statement is creating positive change but really that begins there are three types of positive change in that mission that everyone can think about changing the world but few people think about changing themselves so first of all how can we change ourselves and what do we have to do in order to build better people as a deliberately developmental organization the all blacks said um, develop the individual let the player emerge so how do we develop great players and that's all about self-improvement self-development development of individuals up making ourselves better and more on purpose the second thing is how do we create positive change for our clients those who we are serving and we think there's that paradigm of industry to profession and through educating them with core value number one knowledge sharing our knowledge freely we can help them understand that they don't possibly need that toxic product what they probably need is to be asked good questions about what's important to them and then we can help them align their capital and that could be their financial capital that could be their time that could be their attention that could be their focus or it could be their energy with what they tell us is important to them so it begins with questions asking what is important to them and then we help align their capital the different types of capital with what they tell us is important to them that's the future of the experience economy or positive change making sure they don't have those toxic products but live a life on purpose and then the third type of positive change is what legacy can we leave what bigger impact beyond ourselves and our clients can we have and so we look at that as inside the community in which we operate which is very much hyper local to the emirate of dubai but possibly the wider gcc how can we leave a legacy in terms of financial literacy how can we help generation two become better than generation one here because we are in the wealth transfer window from generation one to generation two at the moment how can we have an impact into charitable type work how can we contribute um, to society and ultimately try and help make the world a better place and there's so many areas here in the middle east 
without gender equality, without um, environmental improvement, without governance improvement, there's almost an infinite number of ways which we think we can have a larger impact beyond ourselves. So they're really the three types, ourselves, our clients and our community of positive change. You touched on it earlier on um, in regards to bad choices. Uh, Dan Carter, is that something that still, uh, still oh, wakes up at night? Oh, absolutely. There are some great mistakes of my career. There was obviously telling James Blunt he wasn't going to make it as a pop star. There was failing, the ones which stick was failing to get on a plane to go and see uh, Jensen Button when he lost his contract with Jordan uh, because I wanted to go and sign up the Pakistani cricket team as clients. Sadly, Jensen Button got a contract with Braun and become, became the, a few weeks later, became the double world champion for Formula One. The Pakistani cricket team got caught match fixing and I had to shut all of their accounts. At the same time, I was told to go and visit Dan Carter, who'd broken his leg in the south of France. And I prioritized a South African wicketkeeper over, over going to see Dan Carter, who later became possibly the most famous of all the all black, one of the most famous all blacks of all, all time. So I have made some career howlers. And those are just some of my career, career howlers. Uh, but I look at them all as great learning experiences, which haven't changed because they got me to where I am today. Ho hopefully wiser than I was before. I'd like to just kind of bring you back to say, to those moments um, and what was your mindset and, and inner dialogue like then uh, you know for example you know say no to Dan Carter which is grand but the aftermath then and realizing you know what could have been well because I'd like to think I have an abundance growth or positive mindset on most things I can laugh everything off and put it down to learning experience because we uh, define an organization that really exists to overcome the obstacles which occur when it's trying to achieve a common purpose. So an organization exists to overcome the obstacles which occur when trying to achieve a common purpose. We're very clear in our purpose. It's that positive change. I talked about the transformation of an industry to a profession. So overcoming those obstacles really the obstacles are just learning opportunities. And so clambering under the barbed wire, over the six foot wall, through the cargo net, just like the, in the military, there is just a lot of obstacles. And I'd rather fail fast, learn things, uh, make mistakes, try and not make the same mistake again. So I, I actually like the Facebook mottos of Dunn's better than perf perfect, move fast and break things because I can't get it right every time and having the time to reflect and understand when I haven't got it right to try to be better the next time as part of the learning experience. So I'm grateful for all the learning opportunities, uh, which somebody might say all the mistakes I, I've made, the howlers which I've, I've made, but I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to make those mistakes and learn, learn from them as we go towards our overall mission of positive change. Just to add on to that, then what advice do you give to people, you know, who might go through similar situations? Is it is it very much down to resilience and and positive mindset and uh, taking as, as life as learnings? Yeah, 
I easier said than done, but I would say that focus and resilience to stay on track and to keep on going whilst all those about you are not keeping on going. I often think it's strange when I look at LinkedIn and I see time of day as for myself as 18 years because I look at other people's LinkedIn profiles and I see six months, one year, six months, two years, and they could have had nine or 10 different jobs. And I look at the key um, factor of success is persistence over a long period of time. It's that compound effect. There's a book called The Compound Effect, which is great. It's something which people like Warren Buffett will talk about a lot in terms of money, but the ability to stick to one thing and hang in there for a very long period of time and to make those marginal gains compounding upon marginal gains, compounding upon marginal gains. It seems when I look at LinkedIn, it's something which many other people don't do, but it's a, an amazing ingredient if you just keep on track when everyone around you gives up. And I guess I learned that also in the military and the things like airborne forces training. Those people who will always go a little bit further uh, or who remain on target as opposed to ultimately giving up. And just under, I know we're kind of jumping from, from one top to the next, but just under, we say, on the positive change, does swans feed into that positive change? So I've already talked about the why, which is the transformation of an industry to profession through positive change. The methodology we use to for the how do we actually do that is from the flywheel of change from Jim Collins, the book Good to Great, and that begins with discipline of people. And so with financial services, with the industry to profession, we look at, we need to change the types of people. We need to get the right type of people on the bus and we need to get the right people sitting on the right seats of that bus. And so we look at for the next generation of people in financial services profession, of financial service professionals, we need smart, but hard, ambitious, nice and selfless in individuals. And we try to look for people with a unique ability, because if we can identify their unique ability, we can get them not only the swans, the right people on the bus, but with their unique ability, we can get them sitting on the right seat of that bus on bringing their best to bear on the, on the world. And whilst a high performance individuals don't need to be well-rounded, high performance teams do. So we try and build a team with different unique abilities. So altogether, they form a formidable ar array of, of swans. That, I suppose um, the DISC profiling would complement that as well, wouldn't it? That would, that would help you identify those qualities. Uh, absolutely. And then build teams whilst the high performance individuals tend not to be well-rounded, so they will be spiky in red, yellow, blue, or green. We, the team itself needs to have all of those thinking styles or perspectives within it, so that we'll try to get people with all of them within a team so that the overall team is well-rounded. They have the be bright, be brief, be gone, the reds who are task-focused. They have the yellows who are people-orientated extroverts, the sunny yellows. They have the greens who are stable, who get work done, who are introverted, uh, people-orientated. And they also have the analyticals that tell me more, always asking more questions, who are the task-orientated and introverts. So trying to get everybody all together within a team is really important for high-performing, high-performance 
in regards to, to the positive change, um, when did you decide to, to implement that and how much do you fully believe in it? That has probably been going since about 2006, where we, we came up with positive change as, an, as a, a mission, but it's changed and evolved very substantially over that period of time. Initially, we talked about that in relation to the transformation of the direct sales methodology of selling financial services to the network solution, which we saw in the UK. And we were trying to bring the same structure into the international environment. But realistically, that wasn't enough because in the UK introduced further legislation in 2012, which pushed things on further and so just like technology we began with nokia phones when i came to dubai we had blackberry phones and now nearly everybody has iphones things change and the modern interpretation of what we term positive change in terms of individual client and society the over, overarching umbrella is much much more modern but we've always been very much focused upon kaizen marginal gains positive change, best practice, world leading. The second part of that, Jim Collins, is about discipline of thought. How can we be world leading? How can we be super passionate? And how can we make sure there's an economic engine in our discipline of thought? And, and so from pretty early on, we became focused on better, best, uh, best version of life for clients, best version of career for people that, a as best version of company if we are working with a, with a company. On to investing. Um, why do you think there's such a fear or, or cautiousness around people, you know, to invest? Is it around cognitive bias, recency bias, or, you know, is it a kind of a horror mentality? It would go back to that wiring and our limbic brain. We are wired for fear and so that's what has for thousands of years kept our ancestors alive looking to the shadows and being fearful of the dark and so i think it's very easy for us to be fearful modern is a fairly uh, money is a fairly modern invention and com compared with our core operating system of our our brain and therefore it's very natural for us to be fearful of that type of type of thing and it's only our outer cortex our frontal lobes where we get to more rational thinking but we know that 90 percent of all of our decisions are made with our limbic brain they are our emotional brain we really have to ask questions of people to get them to think in their system to thought so daniel kahneman uh thinking fast and thinking slow uh, we, we tend most of the time to make our decisions with our uh, monkey brain when you you know you, you would have seen a lot of change in the financial services industry um over the last couple of years we have seen the introduction of cryptocurrency and nfts what's your feeling or opinion or around them well yeah you're right i've seen an awful lot of change but in a way nothing has changed uh at, at the same time particularly here in uh, the, the Middle East, things, the financial genocide I saw against 
hum expatriates, humanity, on the first day of being here in the Middle East, it will be happening somewhere in Dubai again today with the same toxic products being sold with the same lifelong impact on the individuals that have signed a contract for them. Fundamentally, inv good investment involves uh, putting your capital in the best companies of the world and making a return on that capital, which is a fairly scientific and predictable type of thing. It's very different from speculation, which could be betting on the price of an asset in the future without any rights to an income from that um, capital. And so I would put commodities, speculating on the future price of oil and gold, or cryptocurrencies and F NFTs, you buy them hoping that they're going to appreciate in the future, but they don't actually give you any income. You're just betting the price in the future might be higher than lower. Is a gam gambling uh, method of gambling? It's a casino. It's not not what I would term investment. Buying the right to a future income, which from the best best companies of the world, and good investment is fairly simple, like losing weight or getting fit it's fairly simple but not easy and people just don't follow the basic rules of investment and they're not well known because it's not in anyone's interest to tell people the rules of uh, the of real investment warren buffett does freely but people choose not to listen to them because just like uh, the rules of dieting eat less calories and do more exercise. The rules are pretty simple, but they're not easy to follow. Hence, there are keto diets, there are vegan diets, there are caveman diets, and because there are industries that want to sell you these courses uh, who have vested interests. And I think investment is very similar to that. People don't want to tell the real truths, even though the academic Nobel Prize winning academic evidence is there. Fundamentally, it's pretty simple. People should spend less than they earn and they should invest the remainder wisely. And wise investment means buying the rights to future income, lending your capital to the best companies of the world in order to get a return on that future capital, which can be statistically uh, modeled and which you can be fairly certain of getting, not speculating on the price of a NFT in the hope that you can sell it to someone, to a greater fool at some point in the, the, the future. And I think that's the dangers of mixing speculation with investment where, where do you see that sub market or that industry going in the future because you know it, it's it's very much um well in, in my generation a lot of people seem to be you know investing in, in crypto and nfts i think it's the social media journey yep. as well and uh, you know it, it's seen as a sexy thing and people are making quick returns where do you see that going in in the in the future I never like to speculate about the future because the reality is if I knew what was going to happen in the future, I would be a trillionaire. And I wouldn't need to work if I had any good steer on what was going to happen in the future, then I would have bought cryptocurrency uh, back in 2010. I'd also buy the, buy the right horses at all the races. I'd also buy the national lottery numbers. The reality is I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And therefore, 
saying either way is just a spe speculation. And the reality is no one knows. And once we begin filtering out gurus who say this is going to happen in the future, because that is what a guru say, pay, pay me for my course, I'm going to tell you how to do it and how to capture those returns. But if anyone knew, they wouldn't be selling the course. And so the greater fool theory, um, it's very hard for anyone alive to say what will happen at, in, in the future. And if they knew for certain, they certainly wouldn't be telling other people. And so I try not to get pulled into speculating in the, in the future. But I do understand that get-rich-quick schemes have been around as long as um, as long as humans have been been around. There was the the famous tulip bubble, which lots of naysayers of crypto uh, hark hark to where tulip people uh, Dutch traders were selling their ships. Uh, swapping a ship for tulip bulb and these bubbles have then obviously crashed and everyone came to their senses and realized it's called the uh, craziness of the crowd the madness of the crowd where you get bubbles uh, and but the reality is i don't know there obviously seems to be a lot of sense in blockchain technology and a lot of future utility and hopefully we are seeing internet 3.0 coming coming out i'm sure many useful technologies will emerge as exponential technology technological development gets faster and faster and faster would will a lot of people make a vast amount of money that doesn't exist at the moment from buying nothingness nfts or cryptos which have no inherent asset value or will the bubble also burst i can't tell for for, for certain but i do find it interesting that good investment um, it's, a, it's all about human psychology and we know that it's very easy for us to be greedy or fearful and we talked about the fear the limbic brain and the greed the trying to get rich quickly uh, is the other aspect of, of that because most people know that if it looks too good to be true it probably is Do you mention there that the, the, the Olympic brain is there or the, the limp brain or what what do you yeah the limbic limbic brain the um the limbic brain is our human emotional uh inner brain which we've our core operating system which we have had on often referred to as a monkey brain uh which is our emotions our emotional brain which is the one where we we, we governs most of our immediate responses so if somebody says something you don't like it's that's what gets you angry um because we think in system one thinking with our limbic brain which we've had for hundreds of thousands of years of development to keep us alive is our emotional brain what would you say to people in their you know mid-20s i would we say in their 20s before you know before a child comes on on, on the scene or, or marriage what practices could could people do that would put them in a good position to you know to be able to invest down the line i would definitely would say positive change number one which is work on yourself and everyone looks to change the world or everyone looks to get rich but work on yourself and that means improving self-improvement and that could be learning um, from reliable sources and educating 
yourself. It could be improving uh, focus. It could be aligning your own energy with what you say is important to you, to you. But there are vast amounts of great resources everywhere. And just as I learned at university to try to um, read widely and then synthesize a compelling argument out of many different types of types of books. I, I think it's important for people to re read lots of different opinions, particularly if you don't like them, and then form a, a view, a balanced type of view upon them and trying to keep an open mind and constantly improve ourselves by listening to opinions that we don't necessarily like helps us, I think, get a more balanced viewpoint on things, but definitely generally people with it don't don't generate their predominant levels of income through investment they take the capital which in their early years they swap for their labor so most people aren't they aren't fortunate enough to be born born rich you have to swap your labor your time for money and ultimately you'll make most of your money through your career the people that we work with who are top performing executives make most of the money from being lawyers from their salary. They then invest that wisely. They make enough in order to be able to save them and they invest it wisely. But if you're good at what you do, um, if you're a, a good lawyer, if you're a good accountant, if you are a good um, benefits consultant, then you will make most of your income from what you earn and then set some aside and invest it wisely and over a period of time that will compound and you'll end up making much more we're, we're coming towards the end of the podcast now um another another couple of minutes but is there, is there ever a time in one's life that is too late to invest i i refer to investment as aligning your energy your time your attention your financial capital with what's important to you. And so I don't think there's ever a time that's too late to start investing in yourself and living a life on purpose. However, if you talk purely in terms of investing financial capital in order to compound and get a return, then obviously the earlier you begin, the longer that time of compounding is. Warren Buffett began when he was 11 years old. I went on the BBC News when I was about 22, year old, 22 years old and they asked me about pensions and I laughed and said, genuinely, it's just not a, a priority of, of mine at 22 years old to ever think about pensions. And my mother still has that news clip on the VHS video. So I appreciate young people don't think about this as a, a priority, but the earlier people begin, the better ultimately um, that that money compounds but I think in terms of true investment that's about living your best version of your life and that's all about investment in yourself and that begins by asking questions on what is important to you how do you live a life on purpose what makes you happy what makes you satisfied are you, do you want to have a life of meaning a life of legacy a life of impact I, ESG do you just want to make as much money as as possible but once you've asked basic questions about your life you can then put in some goals from goals you can then link through money to the the type of life so i don't think you're ever too involved too too old to invest in living your life on purpose which really is about that alignment of your capital whatever type of capital that is with what is important to you
you you started off as a you know wealth management um company um and you decided to set up a health protection arm of the business uh about probably about six years ago why did that come about and and uh and how did it come about sure so that was a licensing we ended up having a insurance license which we weren't using and so we wanted to get utility out of that license and we began to realize pretty quickly that the local legislation in the UAE in terms of the private medical insurance provided an opportunity to specialize in health. Our organizational vision is to make the world healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I've talked there about the importance of aligning our energy. And the first wealth is, is health. And you can have all the money in the world, like Steve Jobs, but if you don't have your health, then like, like him, the money didn't actually mean anything. So in order to help people be healthy and on purpose, um, we thought we'll specialize in that type of insurance. Wealthy is the wealth management business, helping them align their, their money with their legacy and goals. And wise is about picking that all together and trying to live the best version possible of your life, of the company's life, of the community so that best version mindset in your opinion what would be high performance i think i've probably said it a few times it's about being living that life on purpose and for me we are all unique as individuals entirely through that conditioning um, through nature and nurture and therefore high performance is living a life that is meaningful to you and to do that we need to align your capital with what you say is important to you and if you're doing that whether that is as a couch surfing nomad around the world because that's the type of life that you want to live or as a billionaire in a gambling tens of million pounds per night in the high rolling casinos of the world uh, helping to still what is important to you and helping you live a life on purpose that is meaningful to you it's all that for me high high performance because a lot of people don't live a purposeful life where things are in balance or aligned you would come across and you have you know been interacting with a lot of high performing people um if you just had to take a step back, do you, would you identify a similar characteristic among all, among all of them? Perhaps, you know, they're all early morning people or, or something in, in that category? No, absolutely not. I don't think there are common characteristics and, and definitely not early morning people, which is why many of these videos that say you must get up at the, join the 4am club. Uh, I think there are plenty of high-performing people I know who find it hard to get out of bed before eight o'clock, probably later. And I, I think back to that uniqueness, it's high-performance about discovering your strengths, reinforcing your strengths, not trying to be what you're not, but trying to reinforce what you, you are. And I don't think I can distill it down to common uh, characteristics. It is just living a life 
on purpose, whereby people bring their unique abilities, their super strengths to bear upon the, the world. And there, there isn't, I know that we can go through Clifton strengths and find top the top 32 strengths, but there isn't one single one. I think there are unique people of amazing high performance ability with each and every different type of combination. You have a set of mine and routine? I do. Myself, I love... So I'm an early morning person, not a, not a super early morning compared with some of my colleagues. But for me, I absolutely love getting out of bed and then cycling to work. So for me, the ability to cycle for an hour to, to work and do some exercise um, and to listen to a podcast at the same time. So I get some mental stimulation, some physical stimulation, and I get to work so I don't have to use a car is critical for me to build a great day. So much so that I can't wait to get out of bed in the morning and get onto my, my bicycle. So I love doing that. And the same at the end of the day, I love cycling home as well. So for me, cycling, physical and mental listening to podcasts, I find a great routine. And do you far to travel in the morning? 25 kilometers on a sandy track. So that gives me 50 kilometers a day of cycling unless I decide to run it. Jesus. Um, whoa. What time do you leave? Do you leave in the morning? 5.30. Yeah, so, so you, 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 you do be up pretty early. So Yeah, so I'm, I can be in the office for 6.30, but you'd be amazed how many other people are in the office at 6.30. And people are fully functioning. There's already quite a lot of people in by 7 o'clock. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually one of the late ones, amazingly. <laughs> and and it, just to, to add on to that, would you, um, would you have to get a certain amount of hours sleep every night? I actually monitor it. I use Whoop, uh, this Whoop band, which is quite popular for monitoring my sleep. So I look at sleep as the number one ritual. And so I am very careful about my sleep and i like to be healthy so i don't drink alcohol uh, or very rarely drink alcohol because i know the i'm aware of the impact which it has on things like sleep or my my performance and so i try hard to try to get eight hours of sleep i don't always get it were you always that um that aware or health conscious or did that just kind of change uh, later on in your life i think I think it's become, uh, I've become more and more aware, particularly as middle age comes, a little bit like cycling. I definitely never thought of myself as a cyclist, but that's something which comes to men in the middle age and an obsession with uh, things like health and fitness, uh, triathlons, they all come to middle-aged men. When I was your age, I was just drinking pint after pint after pint, never thinking about any exercise. I was just having fun. It's probably important too at, at times to, to have a, a bit of a, a release. Um, before we, we end it, uh, Sam, how do you deal with the difficult days, the, the days when the anxiety, the self-doubt, uh, the negativity kicks in? I think the reality of that is with difficulty. And whilst I can look at Stoic philosophy and I can read that we suffer more inside our heads than in reality. 
um, Epictetus, these quote, stoic quotes of only focusing on what you can control. It's hard from a mental point of view. I find it particularly hard to block things out. If I'm agitated, um, if things aren't going my way, if um, there is something worrying me, I find it particularly hard. Uh, I know I should probably go and meditate. I should go and take lots of deep breaths. I know that there are things which I can influence and things which I can't influence, but I find it very hard not to focus upon negative things when they they happen and try and resolve them even if i actually can't would exercise be kind of um, a release mechanism dealing with that yeah. yeah i think it does um exercise is a good release mechanism but i will still come back and be agitated i find it hard so that's that's honest uh, honesty um i think i'm quite the same it's hard to divert the focus uh would um, would would visualization be something you've uh, you've actively taken part in, or is that kind of something that happens subconsciously? I think it probably subconsciously. I'm very fixated upon where I want the organisation to go, and so there will be things like the hero journey I shared last week, which had the picture of the office of another organisation in. And so watching pictures of uh, what I think we can be and do in the future if we operate in congruency with our core values and mission and vision. Uh, so I would use visualization both in terms of that pictures and in terms of the vision traction organization from the entrepreneurial operating system in terms of what I want our BHAGs, our big, hairy, audacious goals in the future to to be and i'm pretty sure that even though we might not get there as quickly as i would like us to get there we will get there in the end and that's one of the things which i often do with these goals and targets that i visualize i might not get there quite as quickly as i wanted but normally we end up getting there in the end what are two non-daily negotiables what sorry what are two non-daily negotiables for you Definitely exercise for me. I love exercise. And so I will, at, uh, every day I do at least two hours of exercise. At the weekends, I probably do four or five hours per day of ex exercise. So for me, that's very important. Um, the, the other non-negotiable would be family. I said earlier, I have a psychographic profile of a family steward. So for me, family comes first. And so with three children, I have a limited amounts of time, so I try to make sure that they're always put first. Have you a motto that you live by? Creating positive change. And I normally do that with a positive <laughs> and a change sign. Love it, love it, love it. Um, look, Sam, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up there because I, I, I know we're, we're, uh, we're kind of caught for time. I really appreciate cool. you taking time out coming on Interview Podcast. I think we covered a huge amount and uh, best of luck with everything going forward. Amazing. Legendary. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting the opportunity to talk to you this evening. I hope you all enjoyed that episode with Sam. I think we got a great insight in, into his career and the direction he wants to go with AES International. That is all from us on this week's episode. Please do get in contact with the show if you'd like to contribute in any way possible. 
And don't forget to rate, review, and tell your friends and family about our podcast. And if you haven't done so already, go and follow us on social media. We're on all social media platforms. It's important to do this uh, in order to be kept up to date with all the information and upcoming guests. We also have some competitions in the pipeline in the not-too-distant future. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.